0: Today on Blue 58, let's talk about a micro-trend in roster construction before paging through the history books to find some of the best anecdotes from Packers' training camp. Get ready for a trip down memory lane. Blue 58! Hello and welcome to Blue 58, the one and only podcast of ThePowerSweep.com. I'm your host, John Meerdink. Happy to be with you here yet again. You enjoying training camp so far? I hope so. It's been interesting to watch from afar. Though I'm not sure there's any really big emerging story so far, and I think that's been evident even in some of the coverage that we're seeing out of camp so far. For instance, today I was listening to the first training camp episode of the Milwaukee Journal-Sentinels, PackersNews.com, Packers podcast. Jim Ozarski and Tom Silverstein are doing their best to break down the start of camp And you can kind of tell that there's not a whole lot going on because they kind of got frustrated with a couple real small things from training camp so far. For instance, Silverstein was real hung up on the idea that Aaron Rodgers is throwing to Devontae Adams a lot and that the tight ends haven't been really involved. Well, I mean, there's obvious reasons for that. Devontae Adams is really good. And if you followed Matt LaFleur's version of the West Coast offense at all over his career, you'd know that tight ends aren't particularly involved. If you trace back Lafleur to Tennessee or Sean McVay or Kyle Shanahan in Atlanta, none of them are real big fans of the tight end. Of course the Packers' tight ends aren't going to be super involved. And of course Aaron Rodgers is going to throw to Devontae Adams a lot. I mean, come on here. So I think until we get to the first game of training camp, or maybe until we get to the joint practices the Packers are having with the Houston Texans, we're going to have a hard time... Drawing out any real storylines here because it's all kind of nebulous anyway. I have kind of noticed this as the Packers have made a couple moves in the wake of Mike Daniels' release. Um, they've added a couple running backs here, and uh, I think this is evidence to me of a small trend in Brian Gutekunst's roster building. I'm titling this the uh, well. Let's get to the title here in a second, but let's talk about the the trend first. First. Overall, Brian Gutekunst has tried to help the Packers get faster, bigger, stronger, and more athletic at pretty much every position. We've highlighted it for a long time that at every level of the roster, he's looking for athletes, especially in the bottom of the roster. That's where this small trend comes in. He seems like Gutekunst, as he looks towards the bottom half, the back half of his running back depth chart, is looking for very specific running backs. Running backs that all remind me of Christian Michael. You'll remember Michael from his time with the Packers in 2016. Thickly built, short guy, 5'10, 220 pounds, ran in a mid four fives 40. And as a result, he did really well in a metric we use called Speed Score. The Packers have continued to follow that model since um Michael's release. And basically, uh into the, the last year and a half or so. It's been especially evident over the last year or so. So far in camp, the Packers have two signed two running backs that really fit this Kristen Michael sort of role, Corey Grant and Darren Hall. Grant's a little bit on the smaller side of this model, but generally they're about in that range. 5'11", 205 for Grant. He ran a four two eight forty. Hall is 5'11", 217. He ran in the 4'4", to five range at his pro day. Both relatively thickly built, fast guys, mass movers, guys that I am calling henceforth participants or aspirants to the Christine Michael or Christian Michael Memorial action star running back position. These are guys that if you were doing another revival of the A-team would be cast in the, uh, the Mr. T role. Guy who just looks like an action star. Even among NFL players, these guys look like super duper athletes. They just look absolutely phenomenal. Let's look at some of the guys the Packers have signed. This even includes a fullback in here, as we'll get to in a second. They signed Darius Jackson last September. He was six foot, 221 pounds, ran a 4'4", even in the 40. Trey Carson, a little bit on the bulkier side, 5'11", 227, a little bit slower, but still moves pretty good at four-six-four. Danny Vitale, A fullback, sure, but he kind of fits that mold, too. 6'1", 239, 4'6", in the 40. LeVon Coleman, 5'11", 215, 4'6", in the 40. Capri Bibbs, a bit shorter, but still thickly built. 5'9", 212, 467 in the 40. Brian Gudekunst has a type. He likes thickly built running backs towards the bottom end of the depth chart, and that's what he's getting in Green Bay so far. Now, are any of these guys going to make a difference on the roster? Kind of think probably not. But it never hurts to kick the tires on a guy. And if you're going to do that, why not do it on a guy who you can find a bunch of different versions of, apparently, but who's also super athletic and can fit the, that mold of either a fast running back or a powerful running back. Even if you go back to the 2017 draft, you see that as well. Devontae is the seventh round pick, is an absolutely perfect example of this trend. Let's talk about training camp in general. I think as fans, we get a skewed version of training camp because for us, this is a lot of fun. We haven't seen any Packers football since December, since January, really. There hasn't been much of consequence going on in Green Bay football-wise. There's been a bunch of roster transactions, a bunch of draft-related stuff. But at its core, that stuff is really just a bunch of legal agreements. People signing contracts, negotiations, dollar figures, prorated salaries, stuff like that. This is actual football, and it's exciting because you get to see the players up close. You get to watch them do football-adjacent sort of things on the field. But that's our perspective. What's it like for the players and coaches who have to actually go through it? Let's look at a few of the stories from these guys from over the years and try to get some kind of perspective here on uh, on what exactly this is like. First and foremost, I think you have to realize that for players and coaches alike, training camp is just mentally exhausting in addition to everything else. Here's Mike Holmgren talking about camp from his time with the seattle seahawks at summer camp we're in what i call robot mode every minute is accounted for during the entire six weeks we're in camp i'm talking about every practice every meeting every workout in the weight room everything this gives everyone the freedom to do his job without any distractions it's a very disciplined environment and believe me while you hear the comments that professional athletes lack discipline they really do want it sure they may grouse about it now and then there's really nothing wrong with having them complain but they truly welcome the discipline. They expect when they're at our training camp, they know what to expect when they're at our training camp. They want to know what we're doing, when we're going to do that, when meals will be served, and so on. End quote. By the way, all of these quotes not going to take the time to break down the exact source on each of them, but a big help or a big uh, shout out to Gary uh, doing a bunch of research on this stuff, uh, finding some great stories from Packers uh, figures over the years. Holmgren is absolutely right on when it comes to every minute being scheduled. I don't like to to lean on my own football playing experience all that much because it really doesn't amount to anything at all. But I played a season of college football, hung on to my playbook, and uh, I always I like to page through it every now and then because the memories are pretty good. But this is something that always that I always think about every time, every every year at this time, just how exhausting it was from a mental perspective just to be on for 15, 16, 17 hours a day, all day, every day for a couple weeks at a time. Here's a sample day from our training camp that year uh, in 2007. Uh, Tuesday, August 14th, 2007, Northwestern College in Orange City, Iowa. Uh, 7 a.m., trainer time and equipment repair. If you need any physical stuff looked at, worked on, we just had our first padded practice yesterday. You want to get looked at. You, you had something pop or twinge or something. You got a bruise you need looked at. That's the time when you get it done because at seven twenty, we have breakfast. Team breakfast. Everybody there all together. At eight thirty, we have offense and defense meetings. Get our day scheduled here. Got to get everything figured out what we're going to do on the training or on the field that day. Uh, at 9 o'clock we have a special teams meeting. Then at 10 We're on field for our first practice today. By 11.40 a.m., we're off the field for practice so we can get ready for lunch at 12 o'clock. We've got 90 minutes for lunch, maybe a little bit of downtime in there. At 1.30, we've got offensive meetings while the defense lifts. At 2 o'clock, we have an offensive install session while the defense has their meetings. Then at 2.30, the offense lifts while the defense has their install session. At 3 o'clock, we're done lifting. Quick lift, get a lot of work in fast. Uh, because it's time to tape and dress at 3 o'clock for our afternoon practice, full pads on this particular day. At 3.20, practice starts. By 5.30, we're off the field and off to dinner. Got a little bit of downtime, then we have individual position meetings at 6.30, then our final practice of the day on the game field at 7.30 p.m. Got a little bit of downtime after that. You can goof around with your friends or whatever, but at 11 o'clock, you've got to be in your room, lights off, because everything starts all over again the next day, day after day after day. And those meetings are kind of the worst part. Mike McCarthy, in particular, loved meetings. Here's a story of from McCarthy in 2017. When training camp opened 10 days ago, it began as it has for years with a series of slideshows. Mike McCarthy loves his slideshows. Once an expert in importing data and playbook sketches into old school computers as an entry-level head coach or assistant coach, at some point the Green Bay Packers head coach fell in love with PowerPoint. And as much as McCarthy knows about coaching quarterbacks and offensive play calling, he has now become just as adept at designing overhead projections to keep his players' attentions in meetings, whether those are full team gatherings or separate get-togethers on either side of the ball. People get bored and it is boring. I'd like to go outside the Packers here just for a second to one of my favorite sports-related books, A Few Seconds of Panic. This is a story, a book by Stefan Fatsis, uh, who tried to experience training camp through the eyes of an actual player, spent camp as a kicker with the Denver Broncos in the, the early 2000s, well, may, maybe mid-2000s, so like 2006, 2007, whenever the start of the Jay Cutler era was in, 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 uh, in Denver. Maybe so, like, what would that be, 2009? Not important. Anyway, he, even just as a journalist visiting training camp, um, said it was just absolutely tedious. Uh, he used the phrase exhausting, tedious, and claustrophobic. Here's a longer quote. The routine is unchanging and paralytic. Holiday Inn to shuttle bus to facility to cafeteria to locker room to field to locker room to cafeteria to meetings to field to weight room to locker room to cafeteria to meetings to shuttle bus to Holiday Inn. Groundhog Day, Tick Burns says, referring to the movie in which Pittsburgh TV weatherman covering the insipid annual small-town fortru- for- ritual is forced to relive the day until he discovers virtue and meaning in life. Like Bill Murray's character, the Broncos wake up to the alarm clock pay- playing, I got you, babe, praying that today isn't yesterday. But it is. The drills are the same. The practice film is the same. The lectures are the same. The weather is the same. Even the free chow, copious, varied, and not terrible, begins to irritate. If I have to eat any more food on a stick, I'm going to stab myself with the skewer, a player says, over dinner. So as a result of that boredom, what happens? Well, pranks and hijinks. Here's a good one from Dave Roller back in 1970. Roller started what he called a King Ugly contest in Minnesota, where he played during the 1970 and 1980 seasons. To break up the monotony of training camp, Roller set up a box and had everybody vote for who they felt was the ugliest player on the team. One of the times, Roller had everybody vote for Ron Yeri, and the gigantic offensive tackle didn't like the results one bit. Oh, he was pissed, Roller said. He grabbed the box and just tore it up. But I wanted to do something to break things up, otherwise camp is just so dull. A little bit of hazing, hopefully not much. Bill Walsh famously did not allow hazing of any kind during his training camps with the 49ers, but some good-natured stuff I don't think is all that bad. For instance, 1991, Asera Tualo writes of this anecdote, anecdote with the Green Bay Packers. I reported to St. Norbert, the small Catholic college outside Green Bay, where the Packers held training camp at dinner time. I signed the papers in the general manager's office, then headed to the cafeteria. I didn't know the tradition that all of the rookies had to sing a song before they ate until Don Davy, the third round pick, told me they're going to make you sing. I'm not going to sing, I said. Did you? Yeah. He sung his alma mater's fight song. It was horrible. No one there knew I could sing. I sat down with my tray. The the veterans started calling off rookie names. Sterling Sharp pointed his finger at me. The other players started pounding the tables and chanting, second round, second round, because they couldn't pronounce my name. He stood up, or I stood up and admitted, I don't know my fight song. We were so horrible at OSU that we heard every other team's fight song after they scored, but we rarely heard ours. I'd memorized theirs, but not my own. We'll sing anything, the veteran shouted, so I sang Luther Vandross's gospel version of Mary Had a Little Lamb. Now busted up everybody. They were rolling on the floor. That guy can sing. Brett Favre, of course, a legendary prankster. Here's one such prank from Lenny McGill. I'm the last man on the totem pole, said McGill, a little-known defensive back from Arizona State. It's training camp, and I've got 15 minutes to go until a meeting starts. So I rush to the bathroom. I'm sitting on the toilet, reading my playbook, preparing, and I hear somebody say, Well, good morning, Lenny. And it's Brett, peeping over, looking at me sitting on the toilet, reading my playbook. I don't know what to say. What's up, Brett? I I replied. You doing okay? Sure. It's kind of hot in here, Farve said, don't you think? He pulls out this ice bucket and proceeds to pour it all over me. I had no time to change, so I had to show up to the meeting soaking wet. People asked, What happened to you? What happened? Well, Brett happened. But who's the best prankster of all? This is the best story that I think Gary uncovered. Mike Sherman never would have seen it coming. In my first year, I was the new guy in town, and they didn't know what to expect. On the fifth consecutive day of practice on a hot summer day, I'd worked the players hard. They were beat, so I figured it was time to have a little fun. In cahoots with two players, Ross Verba and Mike Flanagan, we did a number on the players that they're still talking about. Everybody got on the bus for practice, and Verba stood up in the front and shouted, The heck with Coach Sherman! The heck with all the coaches! We're not going to practice today. There was a sudden hush on the bus. Verba started waving his arms and screaming, We're sick of this! We're not going to do this anymore! We're done with Sherman! We're out of here! Verba told, turned to the bus driver and shouted, Keep on driving! Don't stop at the field! The driver was in on it and did as he was told. Turn right, Verba ordered. Go straight, take us to the bowling alley! We're going bowling! "'What the heck are you doing?' Flanagan shouted and grabbed Verba around the neck, acting like he was trying to hold him back. "'Are you out of your mind? We're going to get in trouble!' a coach screamed. "'When the bus pulled into the parking lot of the bowling alley, I was there waiting for him,' Sherman says, to let them know it was for a day of bowling. They were in shock, and that's what made it work. "'To pull off a caper like this, I have to do it when it's least expected, and I do it maybe one or two guys in on it as well. The other coaches don't even know what I'm going to do.' Thinking back on Mike Sherman's tenure in Green Bay, it's hard to picture him doing something like that. But that's exactly why it would have been so effective. Uh, Mike Sherman, a little bit of a prankster, I guess. Then there are, of course, the awful, awful cuts. Cutdown day is always sad. I get sad on cutdown day uh, because, well, you just see guys that that are working hard. And I, I think you see, if you pay any sort of attention to the NFL, that each of these guys is a legend wherever they come from. Almost every player on an NFL roster is probably the best high school player to ever pass through their area. They're one of the best college players to ever play at the at the school where they played. Every one of them has been the best at what they do at one point in their life. But on cutdown day, that comes to an end. And even though some guys do get another chance elsewhere in the league, for most of them, that's it. Here's how Donald Driver remembers Cutdown Day from 1999. Quote, I was staying at the Midway Hotel along with the other rookies and first-year players. The Midway, an old hotel, is, now was, next to Lambeau Field. Training camp was over, and we were just waiting around to find if we'd made the team. Most of us were waiting in the hallway. In my head, I was trying to figure out who would stay and who would go when I heard the phone ringing in my hotel room. I ran to answer it. Reggie McKenzie, the Packers director of personnel, was on the line. My heart sank. I figured he was calling me with bad news. How you doing, Drive? He asked. I was good until you called, I said. Reggie laughed. You had a good camp, Drive. The team likes you. You'll be a great fit. So to what are you saying? Congratulations, he said. You made the roster. Now let me talk to your roommate. I yelled for Zola Davis and told him he had a phone call. Who is it? He asked. I didn't have the heart to tell him. I handed him the phone and left the room. When he hung up, I could see by his face that he'd been cut, and he could see by mine that I'd made it. How did you make the team, he asked me. I could only shrug. That sucks, he said. Zola walked across the street to the stadium and handed in his playbook, and when he returned to our room, I watched as he packed up all his belongings. I packed up mine too, but I did it because I was moving into a new room with Tyrone Goodson, a receiver from Auburn who was hurt. Tyrone ended up on the practice squad. Story after story after story after story of that... Year after year after year. Uh, And all of them are kind of fascinating. None of them are easy to read, but it's kind of a weird thing. Like, I can't not read them either because hearing them, uh, hearing players describe that moment when they either found out that they'd made it, either for a short time or for uh, the beginning of a long NFL career, or finding out, yep, that's when I knew it was the end of the road for good. That's interesting to me because it's a very, very human moment. And I think we forget a lot of times how human the game of football really is. Um, Kind of related to that, I just finally caught up with the rest of the football world and read the book Collision Low Crossers. Uh, It's about the 2011 season of the New York Jets. You get a lot of Packers related insight there because Mike Pettin was the defensive coordinator for the Jets at that time. And I cannot recommend that book enough. It was just phenomenal. It's probably one of the two or three best sports books I think I've ever read. The Breaks of the Game by David Halberstam is right up there too. And I can't decide if this book is better than that, but that one is also very, very good. But just, you forget, I think as fans a lot about um, everything outside of the box score. And uh, this book is almost not at all about what goes on on the field, but almost entirely about the the men who make up football teams and women uh, off the field and what their daily lives are like. And it's a lot of the same, a lot of long, monotonous, similar days broken up by a few hours where you're doing the most exciting thing you can imagine. But if that thing doesn't go the way that you hope it will, you're bummed out for the next week until you get another chance to do it again. Finally, let's talk about how training camp could be a lot, a lot worse. It was miserable for the Packers, for everybody, back in the early days of pro football. Here's Bart Starr from 1956. When Starr arrived in Green Bay for the first time in late June, he was immediately struck by the Spartan facilities, especially the locker room, smaller than his father's garage, and the training room, dominated by an antiquated whirlpool with a rusty pipe. The bleachers in City Stadium made Alabama's Denny Stadium look like the Rose Bowl. Fred Cohn goes a little bit further than that. When Fred Cohn found out he was going to be in the NFL in 1950, he thought he'd hit the big time. The Clemson star fullback and kicker was drafted by the Green Bay Packers in the third round of 1951. He signed a contract for $6,500 his rookie years, and he couldn't wait to get started. Only when Cone arrived in Green Bay, he couldn't believe what he saw. Quote, you could tell the franchise didn't have much money and was in a lot of trouble, said Cone, who was born in 1926. Our equipment at Clemson was better, a lot better. We got to training camp and they gave us old tattered sweatshirts, the helmets, shoulder pads, hip pads, all the stuff was better at Clemson. We even had to buy our own shoes for games. They were on the verge of going broke. Of course, that was one of the big things the Packers changed when Vince Lombardi arrived. He really made them into an actual professional football team. Uh, they traveled better, they ate better, they trained better, they used better equipment. All of that was largely a result of Vince Lombardi's influence. Think about these kind of anecdotes and find some of your own as we go through training camp and think about what these guys are going through. It's like a six-week-long job interview that's going to make or break your career that may only last two to three years anyway. It's going to be super memorable. But it's also going to be completely forgettable a lot of the time. And these guys are going through all of this knowing that it could all come to an end at any moment, either because they find some guy who's slightly better, they want to take a look at a guy who they think might be slightly better, or because they just get hurt and can't go on any further. Keep in mind that human side that these stories show as we go through training camp. And I think you may find yourself both enjoying camp a little bit more and uh getting a little bit more out of it, because you'll think a little bit more about uh, what the players are going through while i 've got you here, I want to talk just real briefly about Mike Daniels again. I was thinking about the the sh- the cut down story or the the story of his release a little bit more over the weekend, and uh, I wanted to add one more thing that I, I can 't believe that I left out in hindsight um. Mike Daniels, obviously, I think he's, he's still a good player, and I think I come down more on the not sure this was a good idea side of the release at this point. However, I think we should point out that as good as Mike Daniels is, the Packers are unlikely to be, one way or another, one Mike Daniels away from a from a Super Bowl. If they had him, it's unlikely he was going to make the difference between them being a Super Bowl caliber defense and not. If they don't have them, that's probably not going to seek their, sink their chances either. There are very few players on the Packers, maybe only one, who are, can have a significant impact all by themselves on the Packers season. And I don't think Mike Daniels is one of those guys. I don't think he was close to being one of those guys at this point in his career. Would I still rather have him than not? Probably. But do I think it's going to be a, a, a season-altering move? No, probably not. Um, Keep that in mind as well as we go through the rest of this training camp. There's going to be more guys like that who end up either injured or uh, on the outs on on the way to other NFL teams as we go through the rest of this training camp. Try to have perspective, and we'll try to do that too here, on who really is going to make or break the Packers this year. And of course, if you lose too many of those guys that are borderline making a difference types, that can also sink your season too. I don't think the Packers are in danger of that right now, and I don't think anything they did with Mike Daniels was going to change that one way or another. So I've got for you in this episode. I do appreciate you listening. Thank you for downloading one of these episodes and tuning in. If you like what you heard and want to help us keep things going, The best way to support what we do is by rating and reviewing the show on iTunes or whatever platform you use that helps more people find the show. If you'd like to take your support to the next level, the best and most straightforward way to do that is to donate a dollar per month at patreon.com slash thepowersweep. A dollar a month is enough to offset our hosting costs for this podcast and also goes a long way towards helping us build the content we know you love both here and on ThePowerSweep.com. And don't forget to check out our great t-shirts and sweatshirts by clicking the shop link at ThePowerSweep.com. If you've got an idea for the show and we've gotten a couple good ones recently, uh, keep an eye out for those in the relatively near future or want to say hi you can reach us at thepowersweep.com on Facebook or Twitter or by emailing thepowersweep1959 at gmail.com. As always, every bit of feedback you give us helps us make Blue58 and the Power Sweep better, which furthers our mission of helping everyone become smarter Packers fans. And as I always say, smarter Packers fans are better Packers fans, and better Packers fans are what we all want to be. I'm your host, John Meerdink. We will see you next time on Blue58.